Welcome to Creating Presence with your hosts, Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yannese. Over the next hour, you'll learn about the processes that steer our hearts and minds and how to improve our collective social health. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Bloom. And I'm Sarah Yannese. And we're going to be talking to you across the next 12 weeks about an organizational approach that's online about becoming trauma-informed and trauma-responsive, and we call it creating presence. So today, Sarah and I are solo. We're, we're going to be in kind of getting letting you get to know us and what this is all about. And then across the next 12 weeks, we will be having people that we interview on a number of different topics, which we'll touch on uh, before the end of the hour. Um, So hi, Sarah. It's good to see you. Hi, Sandy. We've been working together for uh, a quarter of a century, which makes us both roll our eyes. And and, uh, right now, it looks like you're in your office, right? I'm. I couldn't get to the our studio uh, because of the ice that's on the roads here, and so I just want to give the listeners a head up that as a result, my two dogs hopefully will be quiet. They're being occupied with Chewies right now, but you know, no promises. You, you never know. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no promises. So. Um, We thought we'd start really by telling you some of our own personal stories about how we got into this whole trauma-informed movement and how that happened. So, Sarah, why don't don't you start? Sure. Um, My work started uh, early in my career with children and families. And I still do a lot of work with children and families, um, but now my focus is more on adults. And I started um, as an early beginning social worker in the field of residential uh, care for for children. And most of those young people uh, were coming into our program because they had behavior problems. And that was really the terminology way back then uh, that we used to describe what we were seeing. And um, what was really profoundly changing for me in doing that work was making this leap from really thinking about these behavior issues as problems that we needed to solve or um, issues that we just needed to um, help fix to really understanding that this was the way that kids were communicating to us. They were trying to tell us their stories and they were trying to tell us what happened to them. And if we tuned in and listened and tried to make sense with them of of what had happened to them, uh, that we were so much more effective in um, helping them change the course of their lives. And so really understanding the impact of trauma started with recognizing that behavior is communication. And the second thing that really shifted was starting to understand that the ways that we were trying to be helpful were sometimes counterproductive. 
um, often counterproductive, and sometimes actually did more harm than good. Not because we were not good people or we weren't doing the best we knew how to do, but because we didn't know enough. And so this work over the last quarter century, thanks a lot um, for reminding <laughs> us, that that shift has really um, moved my work in a completely different direction. And so now, instead of just thinking about changing behavior, I've come to understand that our job, um, my job as a social worker, as a therapist, um, as a person who does supervision, as a person who leads programs, um, consults with organization, is really to help restore attachment and connection and influence brain functioning. Uh, so that's kind of how it started for me. And now, um, you know, 25 or so years later, I um, am also a mom and a foster mom. And uh, I've learned a lot about vicarious trauma um, in mm -hmm. my professional life, but also now in my personal life. Um, I found early in my career that, you know, working so um, <clears throat> much with young people who had experienced sexual abuse really shaped my worldview. Um, and I remember when my kids were young, just um, finding myself being so overprotective and really um, constantly hypervigilant about sexual abuse. And uh, at some point, it kind of occurred to me that as a mom, I was kind of doing more harm than good by being so focused on this. And I realized that that was one of the, um, you know, impacts of doing trauma work, uh, recognizing how it had shifted my worldview, how, mm. how it sort of affected my personal life. Um, I also found that, you know, talking about trauma was not something that lots of people were interested in. You know, when I was in my 20s and all my friends were getting married and I would, you know, meet people at a wedding and they'd say, oh, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I'm, I work with kill, with children. And they'd say, oh, that's fantastic. What, what kind of work? And I'd say, well, I, I'm a sexual abuse therapist. And they would uh, promptly walk away and get a drink at the bar and leave me alone. Um, so, you know, not having a lot of access to people to talk about that with was really isolating. And so um, now, you know, I'm, I'm at a place in my career where there are so many of us doing this work and understanding what it means. Uh, and I'm excited to sort of share that conversation with you, with our guests, and with our listeners. Well, I'm um, older than you, considerably. So my story starts a long time ago. Um, and I've been looking back recently and, and thinking about how the groundwork was laid for understanding trauma. Because I trained as, I'm a psychiatrist and I trained for medical school and my residency in an urban program in Philadelphia at Temple Hospital, which is situated right in the middle of, of one of the most impoverished uh, neighborhoods uh, in the country. 
And so I was very young when from the time I was a teenager exposed to you know, so what what we now call structural racism and the effects of poverty and the effects of violence. But I, it didn't, there wasn't any way to hold that together. That just was what, what was. And then I started working out in the Philadelphia suburbs that were mostly just white people, middle-class um, white people who were, who were looked just fine. And uh, in 1980, some friends, we got together and started a psychiatric unit. And I also had an outpatient practice. And one of the people I started treating was a young woman who was in college and had accused a man um, on her college campus of rape. And the police investigated properly and it, it hadn't happened. And even for her, it the story didn't really even makes sense to her. So I started doing psychotherapy, what I called psychotherapy in those days with her. We developed a really good relationship. I was very fond of her. Uh, and I saw her every week for years. And she seemed to do really well. She finished college. She'd get a little, I'd get an emergency call sometimes when she was out on a date and I'd just talk talk her down and that was it and i never really followed up in retrospect with those calls uh and then she moved away to go to graduate school and uh, for five years into this uh, i got an emergency call from her mom asking if she could um, bring her to be admitted to our hospital because we had this psychiatric inpatient unit in a general hospital. And I said, of course you can. And she came down and that's really the day, I don't know what day it was exactly, but that's the day my life changed. Because I walked into the room to do the psychiatric evaluation, which I thought would take about 10 minutes because this was somebody I knew, I thought I knew so well. Little did and you know. I, yeah. <laughs> And I walked into the room and um, it was it was her, but she looked really strange. She looked, uh, it's hard to describe, but uh, it was it was an odd enough presentation that I said, who are you? And she said her name. And but then I said, and how old are you? And she said, I'm seven. And I was blown away. I just, this was not possible. I mean, I had seen Three Faces of Eve, and I had seen Sybil, and I knew this phenomenon existed, but supposedly really rare and maybe made up, and it, it, this could not be true. But of course, uh, over the next week or so, this child part of her revealed what had actually happened to her. Now, there were some things I knew all along. I knew all along that her father had been abusive to her mother. It was a domestic violence situation that had gone on until her father died. He died from diabetes 
uh, a year before she came into treatment. So I knew all that. I knew he'd been abusive to her brother. I'm sure at some point I had asked her, you know, did he ever hurt you? She said no. And that was it for me. Um, what at this point in time, five years later, her child part revealed was that she had been a victim of incest from the time she was seven until he died. And I found this just completely staggering because at the time we were not talking about sexual abuse of children. Um, you came a little later, right? And it was, it was not, if it happened, it was very, very rare and only in the most disintegrated families. Uh, and the idea that this could have happened to her, to somebody I knew that well, I knew her mother, I knew I had met her other family member. How could this be possible? So, and I was working in a team. So we were sharing this together and we helped her um, put Humpty Dumpty back together again, just kind of intuitively. And because of some other experiences we had had, we kind of had a sense of what we needed to do, but we were, we were really working in the dark, but it worked. It really, it really helped. But it, it meant that we needed to ask different questions of everybody that came into our program. And then what happened was that all of us started having these very similar kinds of experiences of finding out that people came in to our program for all different kinds of symptoms. It might be anxiety, depression, self-harming behavior, substance abuse, you name it. But we were finding a common denominator, and the common denominator is what they had gone through as children. And I knew that these things now were real. I had with my with the, the person I was telling you about, we I had gotten corro enough corroboration of fact from her mother that I knew this wasn't fantasy. This wasn't she wasn't making this stuff up. This is what had in fact happened. And what we were discovering is that it had in fact happened to, in some way or other, to most of the people we were treating with. It might not be sexual abuse, could be physical abuse, could be neglect, could be some other tragic thing that had happened in the family, but that it was about trauma. And this was 1985, and we needed other people to talk to like you were like you were talking about, right? And there wasn't anybody. We didn't know anybody that knew anything about this. So we got involved in the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. And there we got to meet and learn from people who were dealing with combat survivors, disaster victims, um, victims of terrorism and torture and every other kind of trauma that you could name. And a lot of people who were doing research about this. And then I got to take a week-long course with two people named Judy Herman, Dr. Judith Herman and Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk. And th that was amazing. It happened to be in Aruba, which wasn't a bad place, except I, I only got to see the beach because it was so fascinating what they were talking about. They were talking about all the psychobiology of trauma and what it had done 
to people's brains and their bodies and their psyches and their souls. And wow, that began to change everything uh, for me. Um, so I think we're going to go into a, a break at that point. And that's a good, it's a good spot for me to kind of pause my story and um, pick it up uh, from there. Um, when and, and then get to the part when you met me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't that's really, that's a highlight. My um, story's a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, an old person's story. <laughs> So when we come back, we will also be talking about an unorthodox way to think about not just trauma and individuals, um, but what it looks like to really understand organizations and human service systems that help people who've been exposed to trauma. And spoiler alert, our systems work a lot like our bodies do. So we'll be back shortly. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you would like your organization to be aligned in its values, practices, and skills to be trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, and trauma-resilient, Creating Presence is the program you are looking for. The Creating Presence model is an online and coached certification program authored by internationally renowned Dr. Sandra Bloom. The program is designed to help your organization be certified as a safe place both for your staff and your clients and is managed by Lakeside, the host of this broadcast. For more information as to how you can create presence, go to creatingpresence.net. Lakeside, your response for trauma-responsive care. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Creating Presence with Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yanisi explores the catastrophic consequences of human biology and psychology colliding with our political, civic, and economic systems. They investigate innovations across the human service sector that are helping to change our course and to restore our collective social health. Creating Presence with Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yanisi. Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. 
Hi, welcome back. So I'll, I'll keep going with my story. Um, my friend, Joe Fotorero, who was a social worker, um, he, we were in a team meeting after all this was happening that I was talking about. And he, we were trying to figure out how we had changed as a whole team. And he said, well, you know, We've stopped asking people what's wrong with them. And now we ask what happened and that's changed everything. And as you heard from Sarah, that's kind of become a, it's a the national slogan um, for the trauma-informed movement. I wrote a book in 1997 um, to describe all this called Creating Sanctuary Toward the Evolution of Sane Societies because I was hopeful. <laughs> that we could get there. Um, and uh, I, I knew things were about to change for our program. I knew our healthcare was changing a lot and that, oh, we were going, we had already had to move our program once and I just didn't know how long we were going to actually be able to make it last. Cause you could do, we could do our work with enough staff, but we couldn't do our work with no staff, which is what was happening. The staffing was becoming a huge problem. And then the ACEs study came out, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study came out in 1998. And that really is so important for everybody to understand because what it, it showed as a that that childhood adversity is a major public health issue that people were not paying and still are not paying sufficient uh, attention to, uh, and and that changed things for me. So I started moving away from uh, practicing from primary practice and becoming much more socially and politically involved. I got involved with Physicians for Social Responsibility. We did a book called Bearing Witness, Violence and Collective Responsibility to really look at the big picture. It was really the first public health book aimed at the issue of trauma adversity and violence. And not long after that, around 2000, is when I met you. I was consulting at a lot of different organizations and came upon one where you were working. And we started to do some consulting and writing and working together. And um, most recently, both of us have had the good fortune to have been working, uh, teaching courses at different universities and uh, began doing online teaching and discovered that we could reach more people that way. So uh, Sandy and I put our brains together and uh, partnered with Lakeside Global and created a <clears throat> curriculum that's fully online called Creating Presence. And now we are um, teaching other people about what we've learned and doing some coaching along with that to help them shift how they're doing uh, work, not just with the people that they serve, but also really helping them shape their organizations. Because we've well, learned- you're our you're our lead coach. Yes. So yes, I am. 
for all the programs that are using presence, you're really engaging with them. So mm-hmm. could you share a little bit about what 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 you're finding, what you're what they're experiencing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing that's important to um describe just it, it, to frame the context for what I've been seeing is that in our work together, you and I really started to understand that it's not just what's happened to the people that we're serving. It's also what's happened to the people who are serving. And it's also what's happened to the systems that service takes place in. And so our work has been to really try to intervene at all of those different levels, right? To really think about what do we do to help people recover? What do we do for the helpers to shore up their ability to provide good service? And what do we do at the organizational or system level to create an environment for people to do that work and for for clients to recover in? And so What's been really striking to me um, in the last, uh, you know, 20 years or so is that um, most of what people complain about or struggle with in the human service sector really focuses on their experience of their organizations, um, much more than saying, you know, the work with uh, clients or patients is so overwhelming and hard. And that's often how we think about vicarious trauma. Um, what what I hear all the time is, it's really more about my organization. Yeah, and yeah. that's because organizations can be traumatized. Right. They start to function the same way individual clients function, with the same kind of dysfunction. And so there are sort of four universal signs that stand out to me um, that I've seen over and over again. Um, The first is um, when I hear staff members talking about their experience of their workplace and they complain about parking, um, a little flag goes up for me because I know that parking is not really always just about parking. When there's a problem with parking in an organization, that says to me that there's really a problem of equity and power distribution. Um, It manifests through parking. I don't know why parking is the thing, but that is almost always at the root of it. Who who gets the best spots? Right. Right. Who gets to park where? Who has to pay for parking? Who has free parking? Um, all of that kind of, is there enough parking, um, all of that kind of stuff about where, um, and sometimes, you know, it shows up in like where people's offices are, how, uh, you know, how desks are arranged or who gets their own private office, that, that sort of thing. But those are always sort of um, signals about underlying issues of power and equity. The second thing that's a universal sign that I see um, is around trash. So, you know, what uh, what does the staff break room look like? Has anyone cleaned out the fridge in, you know, the last six months? Is there, you know, 
uh, are there food wrappers on the ground? When I hear about that, um, what I've really come to understand is this tells me that there's a problem with respect, that the people who are inhabiting the space as the workforce are not treating the space with respect because they are not feeling respect. You um, see that too when it's ugly. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, you know, there's it, things are broken. It needs mm -hmm. a it needs paint. There's yes. no artwork. There's no. It's the the furniture's old and ragged and broken and exactly. Miserable. Yeah, and, and it sort of you know go, kind of goes back to that you know that it, there's a parallel for me between how I started to understand behavior as communication with the young people and families that mm -hmm. I was working with and how I now really understand the same thing in our organizations. Um, people are communicating through their behavior, yeah. parking in the wrong place, leaving trash on the floor, not cleaning out the fridge. Um, the third universal sign that I see <clears throat> is around lateness. So when I hear from leaders that, you know, people are calling out sick all the time or um, the staff are showing up late all the time. In my mind, I know that that means people are not feeling valued. And that's how they're communicating that experience by devaluing the the time. The last one is really about gossip. So that fourth universal sign is about communication. When there's a lot of gossip, right, people are going to a meeting and, um, you know, participating. Yes, of course, that sounds great. Signing off on whatever they're being told to do and then gathering in the parking lot later and saying, oh my God, I can't believe they're asking us to do this again. They're, now they want us to do this. Right? When there's gossip, that tells us that there is a fundamental problem with communication. And so those are really the things that I've been hearing over and over and over with countless organizations yeah. mm -hmm. um, that sort of have these intractable, intractable problems. And the good news is, you know, these are actually things that we can address when we understand the root problem, the same way that you know, we can help clients recover when we understand, you know, the, the results of their traumatic experiences. So um, some of the, you know, specific things that we see are um, issues around emotional intensity. So respect and value, right? Trash and lateness. Um, there are a lot of organizations now that are uh, that I'm working with and that are part of our network um, that are starting to understand that their staff have unresolved trauma. Uh, statistically, that makes perfect sense. And we also know that people who are drawn to do this kind of work are drawn to do it because of their life experiences. Right. So we have a lot of traumatized people in the field of human services. Um, and that puts us at risk for burnout. So we need to tune into that. Um, the other thing that I see often around, you know, emotional intensity is um, that we really tend to focus only on physical safety, that when we talk about safety, we are, you know, 
very focused on keeping people physically safe, which of course we need to, we should, but not at the cost of social safety, moral safety, psychological safety, relational safety, cultural safety. We need to really think more broadly about how we define safety for individuals. We, we found that the emergence of the lack of physical safety, physical danger really comes from an earlier erosion of those other kinds of safety. It doesn't just, it just doesn't, you know, unless you've had a brain injury and somebody's hit you on the head, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Right. But if you don't look at those other layers of safety, it won't make sense. Another thing that shows up all the time is um, power dynamics. And this, you and I are going to talk a lot about this in the coming weeks. It's kind of one of our favorite things to talk about. Um, so, you know, that parking equity stuff. Um, a lot of times I hear our, our staff members say that their workplaces feel toxic. Um, and that there's, and what leaders say is that there's a lot of disengagement from their staff. So um, we've really started to understand how authoritarianism leads to disempowerment for staff and that disempowerment leads to disengagement. And so really understanding um, the way that when, you know, people who have been hurt have experienced powerlessness through their traumatic experiences and that engenders helplessness that kind of cascades through all different parts of their lives, we're going to see that in the workforce too. We, I've also really seen a lot of um, challenges that organizations have around the idea of accountability. And most of the time when we talk about accountability, the, uh, the real word that we're talking about is punishment. Right? And not learning, not restoration, not reconnection. And so there's a lot of work that we get to do around redefining. We, we have a couple thousand year history of believing that punishment really is effective. When all evidence indicates it is the worst way to change anybody and anybody's behavior. So we have also found that um, there's that meant a similarly a mentality of thinking about organizations as if they're machines, right? And you talk about this as biocracy, sort of this shift in thinking from thinking about them as machines as with replaceable parts to really understanding that our organizations and systems, function much more like humans. Exactly. Yeah, that they are that they are really living systems. Um, they're and the, the the word biocracy, I love it. And it it originates with a guy named Walter B. Cannon. And this guy was was a really interesting guy. He uh was the head of physiology at Harvard for decades in the nineteen in the, uh, the first half of the 1900s. 
And he's the guy that named the fight flight response. And he is the person who described how the body is homeostasis is what is what keeps the body in balance. So right now you're you're you are have homostatic mechanisms throughout your body that are keeping you going and keeping you alive, right? Everybody is. So but he didn't stop at physiology. He um got really interested because this was we were about to enter World War II. So the the connection between individuals and the social system were pretty much on people's minds back then. And and he became in 1940 president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And he said at the time, the most efficient and stable human society would be a body politic modeled after the organization of the human body, a biocracy in which the myriad of differentiated cells would be organized into functional organs all cooperating in a dynamic democracy in which any form of dictatorship would lead to degeneration and death. And I think we need to really pay attention to what Dr. Cannon was talking about. But right now, we're going to take a quick break. break. So we'll share our plans for taking that work um, forward and for some topics and guests that we are going to include as uh, we continue our podcast over the course of the next 12 weeks. Um, we're excited to learn from some of these folks and dive deeper into these topics and hope you will be too. We'll be back shortly. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you are a professional who would like to know more about how to provide care for individuals who have experienced trauma and adversity, Lakeside Global Institute can provide you with one of two intensive certification courses. You can be certified as a trauma-sensitive professional, which is a 50-hour online training experience. Or, for a deeper experience, you can become a Lakeside Global Institute Certified Trauma Competent Professional through a live Zoom process that is 75 hours of well-researched and practically applied training. Lakeside Global Institute provides professionals with the highest level of training sophistication and integrity for you to be proficient in trauma-responsive care. You can learn more by going to lakesidetraining.org for more information. Lakeside your resource for trauma-responsive care. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. So we've been thinking a lot over the past 20 years about all of the different ways that this new understanding of biocracy and the parallels between what happens to individuals and what happens within our organizations and systems applies. And I feel really confident saying it applies to absolutely everything. Um, So we're going to be inviting guests from a wide range of experiences um, and human service uh, systems from around the globe to join us um, over the course of our podcast and um, help us learn more about some of these applications. Next week, we are going to be focusing on politics and economics. And our guest uh, that we'll be having here for the podcast will be Jared Yates Sexton who is a noted American author, political analyst, and he co-hosts his own podcast called The Muckrake Podcast. And the focus for this week and the next week is on, we use, we didn't tell him, Sarah, we use the word presence as an acronym. And so the first letter stands for partnership and power. And that that will be our focus for for the next two weeks. But for next week, it's with Jared Yates Sexton and politics and economics. And he's going to talk about global history and the current political and economic context and how we need to be thinking about the concept of partnership and power. The following week, we're going to be talking about the traumatized workplace. And our guests, we're going to have a couple of guests. Um, the fir- Our first guest in our Second segment will be Dr. Jennifer Fried, who is a, a psychology researcher, educator, uh, and author who has notably talked a lot about institutional betrayal and institutional courage. And then we'll have a couple members of Creating Presence organizations who are going to share their experience of what it's like to actually use this material. And we're going to be asking them to talk about what changes they've seen and what it takes to make these shifts in their work. We also are going to be um, including conversation about cultural trauma and 
recognizing the impact of colonialism um, and looking at restoring cultural reverence. Because that's what the R stands for, reverence and restoration. And we have two people. Um, one uh, guest is Dawn Isaac. Dawn is the Director of Organizational Development and Cultural Services at the organization that was our pilot program for creating presence is Mary Marymount is its name in Winnipeg, Canada. And then our second guest is uh, Robin Miller. Robin is the CEO of McKillop Family Services in Melbourne, Australia, because both of these programs um, have children who have um, indigenous roots and they honor what that really means and what colonialism has done, but how important it is to restore a sense of cultural reverence. We're also going to look at healthcare and mental health care uh, with some of our guests as we think about this concept of reverence and restoration, specifically thinking about um, how we place profit over people in the way that we deliver services in healthcare. So we have we have four people um, who we're gonna have. That's gonna be a busy show, Sarah. Uh, um, Maggie Bennington Davis and Tim Murphy, uh, that's another duo that have been done work together for a long time. They, they did the second replication of my original program in uh, Oregon. And so they're going to be talking about their work currently. Tim Murphy is the CEO of a Bridgeway Recovery Services in Salem, Oregon. And then Maggie Bennington Davis is the uh, chief medical officer for HealthShare Oregon. And then in our third segment, we're going to have uh, Dr. Carolyn Finkel and Dr. Eli Muir. They are both members of uh, Charlie Health, which is a new program. It's only been around in a year or two. And they are providing services online to children all over the country and their children and their families and young adults. And what's so important about that is that it means that people who would have no access to mental health services can have access to really high quality services. So we want them to talk about that and the barriers that they encounter providing service. We're also going to look at education and speak with some guests who have expertise in bringing trauma-informed practice into classrooms and school systems. Yeah, we're going to talk with Jake Lucas and Tim McGurk. Now, this is where we bring in the global part, because they're, besides Robin from Australia, uh, this is about a program from the UK. It's called um, Novalis Trust. And they run several schools, Cotswold Chine School and the William Morris School for children who have often a lot of developmental and, and psychiatric problems. And they're, they've been adopting a trauma-informed approach for, uh, I started working with them in 2012. So they're, they're doing a lot of work. Um, around really figuring out how to help these children and at the same time um, make it possible for their staff to be okay. And then we're going to hear from Kathy Van Horn, 
who is the executive vice president of the Lakeside Global Institute. And she uh, is the founder of Neurologic by Lakeside, which draws on Bruce Perry's work and applies it to uh, their schools because they run four um, alternative schools for, for kids who can't make it in the public system. And in that segment, we're really going to focus on emotions, emotional wisdom, empathy, um, and integrating skills for young people. Yeah, this is the one for emotional wisdom and empathy. And we are going to look, take a deeper dive into what's happening in criminal justice systems. Yeah, there's a lot happening in criminal justice systems, just probably not fast enough. And uh, not, not all we're good. Gonna have, right, and not all good. So we're going to have a couple of guests again for, for this one. Stephanie Covington uh, is a, a trauma activist in the criminal justice system and has been for a long time. She has a lot, done a lot of training uh, all over the world. Uh, her focus will probably be, we'll let Stephanie focus on whatever she wants, but she's done a lot of work around um, women in prison and alternatives uh, to that. And then uh, Rob Reed and El Sawyer will be on together. Rob is uh, currently Executive Deputy Attorney General of Pennsylvania, but he spent 30 years as a uh, U.S. attorney. And um, he is presently working with uh, Heal PA, which is a trauma-informed movement in Pennsylvania, to try to make Pennsylvania's justice system become trauma-informed. And his friend and colleague, Elle Sawyer, will also be on the show. Elle is a filmmaker. Uh, it's a film that I use in my courses uh, at Drexel, uh, and it's called Pull of Gravity. And he draws on his own experience as a former inmate to really try to, to, to activate the system to do better um, with our, our whole criminal justice system, but certainly with prisons. So and the focus there is on safety yeah, and safety social and responsibility. Social responsibility. Right. And then in addition to um, looking at safety and social responsibility through the lens of criminal justice, we're also going to look at um, journalism and the media. And we have some guests who will be joining us for that too. Yeah, I invited Bruce Shapiro, um, who is the director of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism uh, and an educator and really got started the whole trauma-informed journalism movement. And uh, Dr. Alana Newman, who is McFarland Professor of Psychology at the University of Tulsa, and she's the research director for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma that Bruce leads. So that's going to be, I think, really uh, very different, uh, a different topic that most people won't be familiar with. And we also want to think about among the varying ways that we sort of construct um are thinking about how social health is impacted. We want to talk about the arts. We want to have Dr. Lindra Bills, who's a psychiatrist and senior medical director for Community Care Behavioral Health. She's going to talk about her program called TANT, Trauma Art Narrative Therapy. We've got Scott 
Giacomucci, who is Giacomucci, sorry, Scott, who is the founder and owner of the Phoenix Center, where trauma informed psychodrama, and David McCorkle, a longstanding pal of ours, who is a history as a Broadway actor and as social worker, and their focus is embodiment and enactment. So how we express and integrate experience into all of this. And we're then going to talk about um, early childhood education and parenting, which is a very important uh, topic for me personally. Since, Sandy, you know I'm in my um, mom 2.0, my mom reboot phase where I uh, I have two college-age kids and uh, three children under three. So <laughs> this is, yeah. And it's good times. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know um, a lot then about the end, the nature and nurture part. I do. Oh, I do. So I'm really looking forward to talking to our guests, Diane Wagonholz and Suzanne O'Connor as well. Who are who are both at Lakeside Global Institute. Um, they really coordinate and uh, train their the everything about the in their educational network for around early childhood issues. We are going to talk about communities and how communities can be engaged in uh, doing trauma-informed work. And uh, we're also going to be looking at managing change and thinking about healing and treatment in our final two segments. That Those represent culture and complexity and emergence and evolution. So in the culture and complexity, we have two real stars. Dr. Robert Anda, who was the co-leader of the ACEs study, and uh, Dr. Laura Porter, who uh, serves with Rob, um, trying to really help communities get healthier and incorporate all this information. And we'll end with uh, Christine Courtois, and then uh, who's going to talk about um, complex PTSD and what she sees for the future. And then we'll bring back Jared Yates Sexton and Jesse Kohler, who is the executive director for the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice. And our Hi. final, in our yeah. final thing, before we close, we will, Sarah and I will put our heads together and figure out lessons learned. So thanks everybody for being with us. We look forward to seeing you next week. Same time, same place. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Presence. Join Sandy and Sarah next week for another informational episode. Until we talk again, check us out at www.creatingpresence.net and email us at info at creatingpresence.net. Have a beautiful week.